Um, if you could please turn with me to Acts chapter, let's see, 17. Now we had house churches last week. I heard those went very well. In house churches, we should have covered Acts chapter 17. But since we skipped much of Acts 16, when Alex came to preach two weeks ago, we're going to backtrack to Acts chapter 16 and cover that passage this morning. Uh, there is this, uh, the late Romanian preacher Richard Wormbrand. He died in 2001. He spent 14 years in a Romanian prison for preaching the gospel. Three of those 14 years were in solitary confinement in a cell 30 feet underground with no light. To maintain his sanity, he slept during the day and stayed awake at night, exercising his mind by coming up with sermons. And then he would recite his sermon before he went to sleep at the what, end of the night, beginning of the morning. He did a lot of these sermons. Unfortunately, he only remembered 350 of them by the time he was released from prison. His captors, and these are uh, communists in Romania, his captors smashed four of his vertebrae, and they either cut or burned 18 holes into his body, but they could not defeat him. During his imprisonment, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was mutilated, he was burned, he was locked in a large frozen icebox. And his body bore the scars of physical torture for the rest of his life. One of the things that they did to him was they uh, took off his, his shoes and they, they, they beat the, the soles of his feet until his flesh was torn off. The next day they came back, they beat his feet to the bone. And Richard says that there is no words to describe that kind of pain. He testifies, alone in my cell... Cold, hungry, and in rags, I dance for joy in my mind every night. And during this time, he asked a fellow prisoner whom he had led to Christ before they were both arrested. Do you have any resentment against me that I brought you to Christ? Because they were both in jail together. The man responded, I have no words to express my thankfulness that you brought me to the wonderful Savior. I would never have it any other way. What would keep these men joyful and, and grateful as they were held and as they were tortured? I think the answer is Jesus and the joy that they found in Jesus in their relationship with him. The grace that came only through Jesus, forgiveness, love that comes only through Jesus, the hope of eternal life that comes only through Jesus is the only thing that could keep a man joyful and faithful in the midst of persecution and suffering. And so in our passage this morning, we find Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke on the second missionary journey, responding to a vision of a man of Macedonia, begging to come and help them in Macedonia. When they get to Philippi, they will find joy and they will rejoice in the most painful of circumstances. Church, this morning we have the exact same Jesus that Richard Wormbrandt had and that Paul and Silas had as well. We have the same grace. We have the same love. We have the same forgiveness. 
And we rejoice in this grace. This favor and this blessing that's been given to us independently and apart from our own achievements, our merits or our rewards, accolades or trophies that we might have or our goodness. God has given us and blessed us with an incredible grace. And I pray that we find joy in this grace and that we too are able to rejoice in our circumstances no matter what the trials we face. Title of the lesson this morning is The Joy of Grace. Please pray with me before we get into our passage this morning. Our God and, and Father, Creator, Sovereign Lord, Ruler over heaven and earth, God, all things, all things have been made by you, through you, and for you. Whether we can see them or not, whether we know about them or not, whether they've been discovered or not, Father, they've all been made through your might, through your hand, through your power, through your will. Father, we are but men and women, human beings here on the earth, dust, clay, ashes, a little bit of water. And Father, we bow before you in worship, in praise. We give you glory for who you are in our lives. We submit to your will, to your spirit, to your word. And we thank you for the examples of so many that have gone before us who have suffered intense pain and agony, but yet have rejoiced in their Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we could find that same joy in our trials and hardships. We ask, Father, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May our joy never fade. May our hope in the next life never tarnish, never be hazy or fuzzy, but always burn brightly in our eyes. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Title, like I said, is The Joy of Grace. Let's see how how we'll do this this morning. Um, Okay, so... Let's just go through this first section here, verses 11 through 15. Three points, or is it four? I think it's three. Three points. Three points. First one, the woman of Macedonia. Read with me, beginning in verse 10 of Acts chapter 16. It says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. How do we know God's will? Have you ever wondered that before? Like, I want to know God's will, and if I knew God's will, I would do what God wanted me to do, but I just don't know what God's will is. Have you ever been there before? Ever thought that before? You know, you can find God's will by what I'll call the opening and closing of doors. And that's what seems to have happened here. Paul and his companions, they tried to preach in Asia. They tried to preach in Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit, and the Bible goes on to say later, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What did he physically do? Did he set up a roadblock? I don't know. He just didn't allow them to do it. Okay. But Paul gets this vision from Macedonia, a man standing, begging, and they come to the conclusion. Do you see that in verse 10? It says, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they, they, they're trying to go in a particular direction. They can't go. They get a vision and they say, huh. All right, A plus B, C, this must be what God wants us to do. Doors were closed, other doors were open, and they went through the open door. This must be God's will. 
And since these guys were led by the Spirit, they went. They followed where the Spirit led them to go. If we're trying to go in a particular direction and God seems to be closing doors, it might not be his will. Especially if he opens another door in a different direction. It might be a career path. It might be a romantic interest. It might be some particular ministry direction. But this is a way that we can see God's will in our lives. Verse 11 says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. I think I'm saying that right. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there a few days. Neapolis was uh, the port town for Philippi. Could you put up uh, the next slide, the map here? So you see the, um, the blue stars. Um, they start in Antioch in the lower right-hand corner. They go to Troas. That's where they see the vision of the man of Macedonia, which is towards the top of the screen. And then they eventually um, cross over the Aegean Sea and head to Philippi, which is where the third um, star is. But uh, Philippi was about 10 miles inland from Neapolis. And it was a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was divided into four districts at that time. Philippi was not the capital, but it was a very important city because there was a major battle that was fought there uh, between uh, the guys who had assassinated Julius Caesar and those who had ascended to the throne after Julius Caesar. And this was called the Battle of Philippi. Um, Philippi, uh, through that battle, becomes a Roman colony. A Roman colony means that it was basically mini-Rome. Everything that they did in Rome, they did in Philippi. So you could even consider it as uh, Rome away from Rome. Okay, that wasn't good. (laughs) But it was populated by veterans of the Roman army. And so they were entitled to self-government. They were able to have their own land. They didn't have to pay taxes to the emperor. They spoke Latin instead of Greek. They had Roman coins and they wore Roman clothing. They were completely and thoroughly Roman in Philippi. And that's key to what we're going to be talking about later. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak with the women who had gathered there. So here we find something different. Paul's pattern typically when he goes into a new area, a new city or a new region is to do what? Go to the synagogue, right? So he he comes here. It's the Sabbath. He doesn't go to the synagogue. The Bible says that he goes to the river where he finds a place of prayer and he finds some women there. Now you needed 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue. And so since... Obviously, there were not 10 Jewish men in Philippi at the time. There was no synagogue. And so what people would do if there were less than 10 Jewish men or the women who were either Jews or God-fearers, they would go to a place where there was running water, if there was some, and they would have a play or time of prayer and they would be there to pray. And this is where Paul finds these women. So Paul finds it. I think you guys even visited it, Katie on the steps of the apostles tour that they uh, had got the chance to go on to. So verse 14, you can put up the next slide too. title of the point. Next slide. There you go. Amen. Verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So here we meet 
Uh, the main character of this passage, which is Lydia, she's a purple cloth dealer from the city of Thyatira. She was probably making good money for herself, buying low, selling high, keeping the difference, right? Purple cloth was very expensive, and it was in high demand at the time. It was a status symbol. It's like wearing a, a Gucci purse or, or having a, a Gucci hat or Yeezys or something like that, okay? It was a status symbol, and so... It was expensive because of the process of how you made the dye. It took like thousands of these little shellfish in order to create a few drops of this purple dye. And these shellfish were off the coast of Thyatira, where Lydia was from. So Thyatira was kind of this um, center for creating these purple textiles, and then they would export them all around the, the Roman world at the time. The other cool thing about this dye was that it was color fast. So once you dyed something with purple, you could wash it again and again and again, and the color would not fade. Amen. I wish Levi's would take a cue from that. Anyway, Lydia was a worshiper of God. Um, she wasn't a Jew or a Jewess, rather, but she was a fan, I guess you could say, of Judaism. And these worshipers of God or God-fearers, they did everything um, but be circumcised. Now, obviously, a, a woman you know, wouldn't be circumcised, but everything up to like ultimate commitment, I guess, to becoming a Jew, that's what God-fearers and worshipers of God would do. I love how the credit for her conversion is given to God, right? It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond. Make no mistake that it is God who works inside of us. It is God who acts. It is God who wills and moves our hearts when we hear the message of the gospel and gets us and causes us to respond to him through his grace. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so we find out here just how good she was doing. She had a household. Not just children. In the Bible, when it says someone in their household, they're not, not talking about only their children. They're talking about like their servants and the people who helped out around the house as well. That was considered your household. And so she was influential. She was a leader within her household because all of them turned around and got baptized. You think, well, what about her husband? What about her father? She was probably widowed. Because how else would she invite four men to come and stay with her at her house? That would be quite weird and awkward, would it not? And so she had a house, a house large enough to house not just her family, not just her household, but these four men as well. And so she had to have been well off. And later we find out that the church also met at Lydia's house. And so this was an influential woman that God used to start the church at Philippi. Now, her joy in the grace that she had found was shown in her hospitality in inviting Paul and his companions to stay at her house. And she was persuasive too, right? It seems like Paul and his guys might have resisted her at first, right? But she had to tell him, listen, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And, and Luke writes and says, and she persuaded us. And so, you know, I'm sure Paul and Luke and those guys might have thought, how's this going to look? We're going to this woman's house and we're staying with her. She's not married or she's widowed or whatever it is. People might think some weird and crazy things. But she's like, look, do you consider me a believer in the Lord? They're like, well, yeah, so you need to stay at my house then. <laughs> but Lydia, that's just kind of weird. That's kind of crazy. 
Look, y'all need to stay in my house. She was persuasive. She persuaded even the Apostle Paul, who was quite stubborn and bullheaded himself. And so contrary to what some believe, Paul was willing to listen to women, okay? He was willing to listen. And we know from Luke's gospel that Luke had a very high view of women as well. So I call this point the woman of Macedonia because if you remember, the vision was of a man of Macedonia. When they get there, the first conversion is a woman. Like, whoa, surprise, surprise. Personally, I would have expected a man since a man was in the vision. Who knows how we're supposed to interpret that vision, okay? But perhaps God was challenging some gender stereotypes here in how this all went down in Philippi. Guys, or men rather in particular, are we willing to listen to and be persuaded by women in our lives? I'm talking about our mothers, our wives, our daughters, our sisters, right? If we have coworkers that are women, neighbors that are women, friends, other family members that are women. Men were given the role of leadership, but, but it's humble and wise leadership that we're given the role of. And, and humility and wisdom recognizes that God speaks through both men and women. Amen? And so Paul and his team, they were willing to listen. And they, and later on the church, would ultimately be blessed because of Lydia. God used her in a central and a critical way. And the church needs women of Macedonia. Amen? Amen. Amen. Point number two. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Beginning in verse 16. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Let's pause here. Rejoice in the Lord always. We're introduced to this next character here who's a female Slave, And she's possessed by a spirit, not just any spirit in the NIV and in most of our English translations. It just simply says a spirit, right? My Bible says we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. In the Greek, this word here is pythias, which means python. She had a python spirit and it was a very specific type of spirit. The python, and I'm not talking about the snake python, although snakes were involved. Actually, 
the, 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 the whatever you call it, the genus or whatever of snake that we call python was not given that name until the early 1800s. OK, so in the Greek, when python is mentioned, nobody thought about a snake because that's obviously what we all think about when I say python. Right. They didn't think that python was a mythical serpent who had somehow um, claimed all of the energy of the earth. And dwelled in the center of the earth. Um, the serpent could also be looked upon as a dragon. The serpent protected the center of the earth. And Apollo, who was the son of Zeus, went to the center of the earth and killed Python. Okay? As Python was killed and lay there in the center of the earth, his flesh began to decay and rot. That's what Pythias means. It means to rot or to decay. And as the stench of Python came up through the cracks of the earth, it would let off these fumes by which an oracle, an oracle was someone who um, gave prophecies or foretold the future. The oracle would somehow inhale these fumes. You can put up my next slide, please. Uh, this oracle would come up and would inhale these fumes and would then be able to go into um, an, an ecstatic trance and be able to predict or foretell the future. So here you see uh, a depiction of this um, priestess of Python. And um, normally it was a, a young girl. Um, the priest would select this young girl. You see the crack in the earth and you see the smoke coming up out of the ground, right? This Python... And this way of receiving, I guess, wisdom or foretelling the future was the most powerful spirit known in the Roman world at the time. There was a huge temple set up in Delphi. And this is where apparently this crack in the earth was and where uh, Python lived. But as Paul and Silas go into Philippi, which again was a Roman colony... They would have been very, very, very familiar with Python and this Python spirit. Everyone would have known about it and somehow even had been influenced by the spirit. And so back then, just like today, anybody ever heard of Miss Cleo? Some of the older, older, older ones of us have heard of Miss Cleo. She used to have a commercial on back in the 70s and 80s. But we probably all heard of tarot card readers, right? We've all uh, heard of people who, who read palms and that kind of thing. Um, astrology, right? Uh, Ouija boards, um, crystal balls, yada, yada, yada. Mostly, mostly those things are gimmicks and nonsense and parlor tricks, okay? But make no mistake, there are genuine operators of the occult that exist today. Make no mistake that they have given themselves to dark forces in exchange for different abilities or to have different lifestyles. The spiritual world is alive and well. If we can believe in God and all of us love to have the, the little angel on our shoulder, right? But nobody likes to think about the bad one on the other shoulder. You see what I'm saying here? And so if you believe in God, you got to believe in Satan. If you believe in good spirits, then you got to believe in bad spirits too. And so I know that we dismiss it here in our Western world, our Western culture, 
Because again, we're blinded by rationalism, materialism, affluence, and independence, right? Here in the United States, do we even really believe in that? I don't really believe in that kind of stuff. That's what we tend to say. But I'm telling you, why would Satan come out and and actually scare us, right? Scare us into running towards God. Why would he do that when we've got Netflix? Why would he do that when we've got Wawa? We've got all the comforts and all the conveniences here in this life. We're already distracted. We're already distracted. He doesn't have to come out in full force and, you know, fangs and slobber drooling. I don't even... I don't know what he looks like, okay? I'm just saying, he doesn't have to manifest himself in that way with us because we're already so far distracted by the worries, riches, and pleasures of this life. Go to Papua New Guinea. Go to India. Go to Suriname. Go to Zimbabwe. They're not thinking about nice grass and whether or not my grass is better than my neighbor's grass. That's the type of stuff we worry about here in the United States. They're not worried about what episode of zombie madness they're going to watch next. Oh, I'm on episode six. What episode are you on? I'm on episode nine, season four. They're not worried about that stuff. People in those countries are trying to survive. And because of the pain that they feel daily in their lives, they're forced to look beyond themselves to something greater, something that's going to give them relief. And so people do run towards God, but if they don't, guess what? Satan is there in full force to take these people away. And that's where you see it. And like the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 and other encounters Jesus had with, uh, with demons, this spirit cannot keep it to himself. I'm assuming that Python is a male. I don't know. But the spirit says, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And it looks like this girl did it for many days, the Bible says. Why didn't Paul immediately cast it out? He kind of built up this resentment Paul was having, like as they're going to the place of prayer, back and forth. The woman's there, like, hey, these guys are telling you. And he's just kind of getting more and more annoyed every time, every time, right? I think Paul didn't immediately cast it out because he knew if I cast out this demon, it's going to cause drama here in Philippi. He'd already been on his first missionary journey. Paul knows what happens when he starts to say stuff. Bad things start happening. And so I'm just assuming he thought maybe I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to say anything. But the other thing to consider is because of the culture, Apollo was also known as the most high God. And so as she would have been going around saying this, these men are pointing you the way to the most high God. The people in Philippi were not thinking about Jehovah God. They weren't thinking about Yeshua, Jesus. They weren't thinking that way. They would hear Most High God. They would think Apollo. And so what I'm supposing is that Paul did not want there to be any confusion about who he was preaching about. And so he gets annoyed. He casts the spirit out of the girl. Note, he speaks directly to the spirit, not to the girl. And he speaks in Jesus's name. Right? In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. A big part of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons. He has authority over the spirit world, and he even delegated some of that authority to the 12 and ultimately to the 72. 
And the authority of Jesus and his word are our biggest weapons when it comes to dealing with evil forces and evil spirits. Some of us are still questioning whether, is that really real though? Do we really believe in that stuff? Read Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now listen, I tell you, Before we went to Trinidad, I thought the exact same way. I don't know if I really believe in all that stuff. That stuff sounds kind of crazy. But I tell you what, the very first Sunday we got to Trinidad, guess what happened? A sister came and pulled Leslie to the side and said, Sis, do you know how to cast out demons? Because we've got a sister upstairs that has a demon inside of her. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, we ain't in Chesapeake no more. (laughs) Ain't no Wawa. Ain't no Walmart. No high-speed Wi-Fi around here. We're in a new place. We went out to the bush to count the cost with a family, a household that was getting baptized the following day. As we're counting the cost, this huge rainstorm comes in. A huge swarm of gnats. It was crazy. A huge swarm of gnats comes into this area where we were. So many of you were like this. They were everywhere. And as soon as they came, they left. But as soon as they left, guess what? There was an army of frogs that started marching up onto the patio from the bush. I am not lying. I am saying. I have all of my wits right here, okay? You were there. Were you there? Leslie was not there. I can introduce you to some people that were there, all right? Eyewitness accounts. Craziness. Craziness. So Paul casts out the demon, and sure enough, it lands him in trouble. Verse 19 says, When the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So because of Paul casting the demon out, the owners, owners get upset. And mind you, she had more than one owner. Owners, right? They were upset not because of the challenge they received or not because they were offended by the preaching, but because their money was interrupted. And Paul and Silas were grabbed, not Luke, not Timothy. Because in verse whew, 20... They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, right? Luke was not a Jew. Timothy was a half Jew. Paul and Silas were full Jews. And so they were the ones that were arrested. And in verse 22, mayhem ensues. The crowd attacks. Paul and Silas were stripped. They were severely beaten across the back with rods. These rods were normally from an elm tree. They were long. They were Thin, they were slender, they were relatively flexible, and they were blows that were delivered by trained veterans of war. Remember, these guys that were in Philippi were veteran soldiers who had inherited land and created this Roman colony. Every single one of these guys that were there had fought and killed in war. They knew how to inflict pain. This was not like the Jews. The Jews... Uh, weren't allowed to exceed 40 lashes when they punished a criminal, so they had a term called the 40 lashes minus one. Paul refers to that in 2 Corinthians. 
This wasn't no Jewish beatdown. This was a Roman beatdown. The Romans had no limit to the amount of times they could inflict, inflict wounds and punishment upon a prisoner. Paul says that he had been beaten with rods three times when you read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And not, and not to mention he got 40 lashes minus one five different times at the hands of the Jewish authorities. In verse 23, it says that the jailer... Um, I'm sorry, my eyes are kind of going crazy. After they had been severely flogged, they were stripped and beaten with rods. Where am I? After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So the jailer puts them into an inner cell, the Bible says in verse 24. An inner cell was a cell that had no external walls. So you couldn't break out of prison, okay? Someone couldn't drive and drive a truck up to the wall, and you know how they do it in the movies. They kind of yank the wall open, and then, hey, you get to run out of the prison. You're in an inner cell where you couldn't break out, and you could not be broken out. And so, in a sense, they were in maximum security. And on top of that, their feet were in stocks. Stocks is that thing that I had up on the very first slide. But... For Paul and Barnabas to go through this, all of this was wrong. They were Roman citizens, both Paul and Silas, and they'd been wrongly treated by the magistrates. They'd been illegally beaten and illegally imprisoned. But in verse 25, we find Paul and Silas singing to God. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Like, what is going on here? They've been treated unjustly, treated unfairly, treated criminally when they were not criminals, beaten to where their backs were raw, flesh hanging all over the place, feet in stocks, in a smelly prison, and they're praying, they're singing to God, they're not cursing, they're singing, they're not whining, they're singing, they're not complaining. They're singing. How? Why? I used to see this as a, as a show of their strength. These guys had so much mental fortitude that no amount of pain was going to break these guys. And la, 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 I'm just going to sing my way through this. That's the way that I used to view this. I'm a little bit older now. A tiny bit more humble now. And now I see it as joy that they found in God's grace in their lives. 2 Corinthians 12 says, after Paul gives his famous list of trials, he says, my, that Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because of the grace of God in Paul's life, he went from lamenting weaknesses hardships and difficulties to boasting about it and rejoicing in it. That's what had them up late, singing in a prison with their backs torn to shreds. 
That's what had Richard Wormbrand dancing mentally in his cell. God's grace. And that's what we have when things go sour in our lives. When there's no more money in the account. When our GPA is sinking. When our uh, people think we're weird because we're Christians. When our marriage is rocky. We've been given grace and acceptance and forgiveness by the God and the King of the universe. And we can rejoice in that. No matter what comes our way, we have reason to rejoice and to be joyful in suffering. And you know what else? The prisoners are listening. The prisoners are listening. Doesn't it say that in verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. You don't think that our friends, our families, our co-workers, our classmates, our neighbors take note of how we respond to pain and suffering? You don't think that they're watching us? I'm not saying that we don't express our griefs, our doubts, our fears. I'm not saying that we're not vulnerable, open, honest, humble, and real when we're feeling pain in our lives. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we can't end on the pain and the grief and the doubt and, and the hollowness that we feel. We can't go around saying, oh man, I had such a bad week. It was just so horrible. I got a flat tire and I lost my job and my boyfriend broke up with me and whatever. You know, I got my, my Jordans are dirty now and everything else. And life is just bad. I'll see you. No, you say all that stuff. But then you say, but God in his grace has saved me. And you know what? I'm going through a hard time, but I'm fired up. I'm happy. I am full of joy. Because at the end of the day, I don't care how scuffed up my Jordans are. I get to see my father in heaven. Are you with me? There is a difference. And we do have a reason to be joyful in the midst of pain. That kind of faith leaves an impression on people. Just like it left an impression on this jailer. Let's keep going. Point number, thank you, three, I guess it is. Grace fills us with joy. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately... He and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order. Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. You better recognize 
the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Please go. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Last point. Grace fills us with joy. Grace fills us with joy. Now, this isn't the first jailbreak that we read about in Acts, right? Acts chapter 5, we know that the Lord breaks um, Peter and John out of jail. Acts chapter 12, an angel breaks Peter out of jail. If you're in jail and your, cha- your chains are all of a sudden loosened and the doors fly open, what do you do? I am gone. <laughs> gone, right? And for a Roman soldier, you earned death if a prisoner escaped on your watch. And so in his mind, in the jailer's mind, he was as good as dead. The Bible says that he draws his sword and he's about to run himself through and kill himself because he knew there is no way I'm getting out of this alive if these prisoners have escaped. But he goes from about to be killing himself to trembling on the floor before Paul and Silas. What changed him? How did he go from one to the other, a place of despair to a place of complete and utter humility? A few things. One, he was probably amazed at the response of Paul and Silas after they had been beaten. Again, remember that they were praying and they were singing instead of cursing and complaining. And so the jailer was probably listening just like the other prisoners were listening to. Two. I'm sure that the jailer was amazed by simply what happened in the earthquake. Like he's asleep, all of a sudden there's this rocking and the the doors all of a sudden fly open and the prisoners are all of a sudden free. That would have changed him. Three, he was amazed by Paul and Silas and the other prisoners remaining when they had been set free. Why in the world would they do that? I believe that the prisoners were somehow inspired after they heard Paul and Silas, they're praying, they're singing. In the middle of the night, they were somehow inspired and moved to want to hear what Paul and Silas actually had to say. So that when the doors were open, they were like, I could really care less about this. Tell me some more about what you're talking about here, about your God. And so they stay. And the fourth thing I think that moved this jailer was he was given a chance to live. He got something he totally did not deserve. He did not get the bad thing that he did deserve, which was death. He got the good thing that he did not deserve, life or grace. This was not of himself. He didn't work for it. He couldn't boast about it, and it humbled him. All this must have confirmed the slave girl's testimony that Paul and Silas were showing them the way to be saved. He would have heard the story. He would have known, well, why are these guys here in maximum security? Why am I supposed to protect them so heavily? He would have known the story. And so Paul tells them, believe in Jesus, you and your household. And this was a summary version, okay? There was much more that was said. Luke's purpose in writing was not to explain doctrine here in Acts chapter 16. It wasn't as simple as uh, just believe that a man named Jesus existed and you're going to be saved. What does it say in verse? I'm sorry here. um, 
Pardon my eyes again. Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his household. Yahweh, the one true God, had to be explained to them. You cannot have Jesus without the Father. We even see signs of repentance. Verse 33, it says that the jailer washed their wounds. So he has a mind change. Instead of harming you, I should be helping you. And then at that hour of the night, and Luke says immediately, they were baptized. Now many teach an incredibly watered down version of conversion called easy believism. People are not called to repent. And they preach baptism is not the point at which sins are forgiven. They say that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace, and you only need to believe. This only leads to false conversions. Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was baptized. Jesus commanded baptism, Matthew chapter 28. Peter preached, repent and be baptized, Acts chapter 2, for the forgiveness of your sin. Paul preached that the people should repent and turn to God, Acts chapter 26. And he himself was baptized, washing his sins away, Acts chapter 22. Doesn't it make sense that Paul would in turn turn around and teach the very same thing that he did? It only makes sense. Again, consider what time it was. The earthquake happened around midnight. Look at verse 25. Doesn't it say about midnight? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. So around midnight, this earthquake happens and everything starts to go down, right? They were brought out of the prison in verse 30. They speak the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all the others in his house, verse 32. This would have taken some time. Then their wounds are washed, verse 33, and then all of them are baptized, and then they eat. All this happens before daylight, verse 35. It says, when it was daylight. This happened in the middle of the night. And so what time were they baptized? Was it 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning? I don't know. It was sometime in there. Would you agree? Sometime in there. Why were they so urgent to get baptized in the middle of the night? Why not wait until the next day so they can invite all of their friends to their public profession of faith in Jesus Christ? It's because they were urgent. It's because their sins had not yet been forgiven. And they wanted to be saved. If you have bought into easy believism, in other words, you believe that you are saved when you believed or when you said a prayer. If you've never truly repented or if you don't even understand what repentance is, if you've never been baptized or you've been baptized as an outward sign of an inward grace versus what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, I humbly and most respectfully ask you to reconsider your conversion. Now, it may seem and it may feel like I'm splitting hairs. But this false teaching is a big reason why there's so many people out there who claim Jesus, 
but whose lives look nothing like Jesus. And if you're here this morning, I assume that you are good hearted. I assume that you have good intentions. I assume that you're serious about honoring God. And in my experience, I find a lot of great hearted people that have simply been mistaught. And so, again, I humbly and respectfully ask you to not be deceived or misled by incorrect teaching. Sit down and open the Bible with one of the brothers or the sisters that brought you this morning and let the word of God judge. Let the word of God say. Verse 34 says that the jailer was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole, he and his whole household. Again, he didn't work for it. He couldn't boast about it. All he could do was live in gratitude for the grace that he had received, and he did. Before the sun came up, he served Paul and Silas an early morning breakfast. Are we not like this jailer? Fully conscious and aware of how we've messed up? Understanding of what we deserve, death? But instead, we've been given grace and mercy. Romans 5 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Doesn't that fill you with joy this afternoon? I hope it does. That's the joy that allowed Paul and Silas to pray and sing in a Roman prison. That's the joy that moves us to rejoice in our darkest situations. That's the joy of grace. In the morning, an order was sent to release Paul and Silas, but they still refused to leave. Like, would you please leave? Since they had been illegally beaten and imprisoned, it was important that they got a public apology. This will go a long way in protecting this new church that met at Lydia's house in the eyes of the Romans at the time. Rejoicing in painful trials makes an eternal impact. Because of how Paul and Silas rejoiced, the prisoners, the jailer, and his household were affected eternally. Church, no matter what we're going through, Let's rejoice in the Lord always because his grace fills us with joy. Amen. Amen.